This is Rich Bullock speaking, and on behalf of the ASMAC Board of Directors, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. about your catalog. 
So I, I don't want you to have to write this list while I go through it with you, but it's here and it's in the back if you don't have it. And then there's a, a handout that Jillian made available to me that describes digital formats and what the, the most current formats are. It's not complete, but it's a good place to start. I know a lot of old timers are really frustrated by the digital world and the formats keep changing. So you might find that handout useful to keep track of all the acronyms and uh, what's going on in, that, in, in the digital area. So many, we decided to do this tonight because for many people, the summer is over and after Labor Day, everyone says, let's get down to business. We gotta get back to taking care of business. And it's also a good time of year to start getting organized. And I, I know most composers I know, and I, I do this myself, we're always on to the next composition. And it, it's hard to even think about what you just finished because you're on to the next project. But all of us are losing money by not being organized and meticulous about keeping records and following up and, and looking at this stuff. So I'm gonna give you some suggestions about how to get yourself organized. So some of you, you've got it all under control and you have a staff of people who take care of this for you, but not, not everyone works that way. <clears throat> so you would be surprised at how many composers rely on their PRO to provide the list of their works. Is, is that not true? I've asked composers, well, what have you written? And they download the, what's on the ASCAP. And I'm just like, goodness sakes. That, that may be part of what your legacy is, but I think you need to not rely on your PRO to provide that kind of data. So what I'm suggesting is that you actually create a spreadsheet of all your intellectual property. And if you're not good with databases, make yourself a, a, a form and enter all the information on a form and put that in a loose leaf notebook in alphabetical order. Because it's once you have all the information, then you can start making some decisions and take some effort, be proactive about pursuing your the various issues that come up with your catalog. And I think this will become clear as I discuss this with you. So uh, you don't have to do it on a computer, but that works really well. And when I've done this for composers, and mostly I've worked with el elderly composers or composers who, who uh, I'm working with the families and they're trying to sort out what dad or mom did <laughs> and where the documents are. And, uh, it, it's it's always shocking to me how little information they can get their hands on and really know and understand. So I would encourage you to do this for yourself, but also for your heirs, so that you, you'll make that part of your legacy and they can handle things easily. I'm sure others on the panel will discuss that. So I, I don't need to read the list to you, but what I do with this database is I print it out and I blow it up large, and I put it in a book that's many pages, put a hardcover and staple it, and, and so that they can actually read the large type version of it and add notes as more information becomes available so that they're not working with the database all of the time. 
And I think for all of us, it, when you sit down and look at all that you've created and, and all the various aspects of your legacy, you'll be pretty surprised and maybe even pat yourself on the back. And, but also, you'll see a lot of opportunities uh, when you see the list in its totality. So, does everybody have the list? I don't need to read that, right? So, the, the main things are catch, uh, putting in one place all the information you need about title, uh, co-author, lyricist, data composition, the, list, the, the length of the composition, what the instrumentation is, whether or not there's a cue sheet, publisher, co-publisher, whether it's a work for hire, whether it was a commission, uh, when was the premiere, uh, are there arrangements, what are the copyright registration numbers, the copyright renewal numbers, uh, whether you've done the title registration, whether it's ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, uh, information on the recording, who owns the masters, the master encumbered, sound, is there a sound recording, uh, what's the format of that? Do you need permissions uh, for any aspect of uh, marketing and distributing this? What about the internet presence? Is it pirated all over YouTube? <laughs> Which uh, a lot of people are dealing with that. And do you have the scores and parts ready to distribute? What's the page count and what's the size? And which items have been digitized and what formats are they in? available. So also you need to keep a list of all the contact people for the various entities related to your music in a database or create a separate file of contacts with all the details about who to contact and what your relationship is with them. Because having that in one place, I, if you have to search around for an hour to figure that out, you're in a lot of trouble. And It'll, it'll be frustrating if you won't put your time into the efforts you need to make to manage your catalog. Also, be sure to make a comments section, notes section in your database so you can put all the other miscellaneous information you need. So the, the purpose of this is to have all the stuff in one location, but also so you can see the patterns so that when you, you might see all, when you start this list, you'll say, oh, I have, uh, like one woman I'm working with, she has uh, 190 pieces never registered with her PROs. She, she has 120 of them registered, but <laughs> there's a whole lots of pieces that she never registered that have to be done. When you start to see that on the chart, it's easier to sit down and register all of those pieces from a chart like that than to do one individually each time online. I can take care of them all at once. You'll see the patterns and you'll see uh, the opportunities by examining the spreadsheet. It's also the document you can take to someone else to get help with that kind of work and say, well, here's what I know and this is what we're missing and I need help here. And it, it's, it's a great gift to yourself and to your heirs. And then I would say, what are the priorities when you're working with your catalog? Make sure everything's registered and up-to-date with your PRO. That's really crucial. I can't tell you how many composers I know who don't take care of that, and they're losing money because the PRO doesn't know that not only is there the original composition, but various arrangements of, their, of the work out there. Also, uh, make sure you have filed the copyrights and compositions and audio recordings. 
Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Get back the rights for compositions that were published originally by somebody else or that you can. And uh, you, oh, by the way, the copyrights we can talk about, you can file them as a bundle to save money. And I really advise you to send physically two copies of the music if you have the score and parts to the Library of Congress with the Copyright Office because then it it gets folded into the music division, music collection, and lots of people go there to find scores and parts for performance. And so just uh, just filing a copyright without that, it's um, you're missing an opportunity to get your music out to performers. Also, you, this is a good way to start checking uh, royalties and proper reporting. Uh, you can start to take back the old recordings that are now orphans where there's no administration and you haven't seen a nickel for many years. And we'll talk about this a little bit with acceptable risk. And you can secure permissions that you may need that used to be a handshake and you need it in writing while the person is still alive to take care of that for you. Um, you need to scan the scores and parts for long-term preservation. And some of you may know, I, I wrote an article in 2007 for the Overture. It says, Advice for Composers on Music Preservation, Documenting and Enhancing the Legacy. And a lot of people were really upset about this article because I said that the laser printing that everybody's doing with their scores and parts, if you hold those papers up from the 90s and 80s and shake them, the notes fall off the page because they're not going to last uh, for decades, a lot of them are already compromised, and, and so I, I advocate that everybody uh, digitize their scores and parts. And also, uh, you can make the scans available online and sell the scans for study purposes or for performances. So, uh, let's see, I think I'm done with all of that for now, and uh, who wants to go next? Okay. <clears throat> so, um, some of what I'm going to say is sort of uh, tangential to what you said. So, just a little background for me. I, I started as a composer, and then I met my husband, whose father was Alex father is Alex um, My mother-in-law was, after Alex died, my mother-in-law, Anna, was the one who knew everything about everything, but she had it all stored in her head. <laughs> So she passed away about uh, 12 years ago, and then we were left with that highly enviable position of trying to figure out what's So everything that Jeannie has said, I absolutely um, support. So, so that's what happened was we had this closet, we have this pretty big closet, and the closet is full of stuff, stuff that's Alex North stuff. And we had, there was no list of it, there was, Nothing except for a whole bunch of stuff. Sorry, a whole bunch of stuff in this um, closet. So I hired a few people, young people, and I, I we had shelves. So we labeled shelves. Um, I had them use uh, the kind of light form of FileMaker um, Pro. It's called Bento, super easy. And then I had them list whatever it was. Is it the score of Spartacus? Is it Virginia Woolf? Is it the full score? Is it sketches? Uh, is it in Alex's hand or is it Henry Brandt? You know, what were the details of these elements that we have? 
some of it wasn't uh, sports, some of it was recording, some of it was a words in line, some of it was articles uh, on apps, whatever. Um, and then we created that database that uh, Jane refers to. So for us then what happened is people will call and just ask, hey, do you have blah, 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 blah. For example, the other day, somebody called wanting the, the symphony number one from Africa. So I pull up my database, type in Africa, uh, we have, yes, we have something, but it's sketches only. I don't have the full, the full score. Uh, for your heirs, you're all alive. <laughs> when you die, um, it would be helpful to let your heirs know where the materials are. So for us, some of it is at the house. But my mother-in-law had donated four boxes of material to the library which in theory is great, because that's a great way to preserve these materials. Problem is that these materials arrived at the late Library of Congress, and then somebody separated them. So, so I have lists that say, well, this, this, and this were sent over to the Library of Congress, but now I don't have any, it's not box one, box two, box three, box four anymore. So in as much as you can keep things together and label their uh, locations, that's super helpful. We also have materials, let's say, at the Margaret Carrick Library, the Warren Shirt, they're fantastic. I can call them and go online and see what's there. Um, we just found this Africa Symphony, so I said, I don't, I don't have it. I haven't seen it. Turns out it's at Harvard. So, so I didn't know that. I mean, so those, these are the things I recommend is just keep note of if you're, as you age, if you're giving things away, Make sure you know where they are and what they are. Um, okay, so uh, the first thing I did when I when we lost my mother, we hired Thompson and Thompson lawyers to go to the copyright office and make us a list of every single Alex Miller copyright because we did not have that. And many of his copyrights were early, and so they aren't. In fact, the data isn't necessarily available online in the copyright office. So. You actually have to physically go into the library, into the um, copyright office, and get that data. So that's what Thompson and Thompson did. When they did that, we had the, the list of copyrights, and we had we we were um, we had the information about whether it was a work for hire or not, and then we had information about the dates of registration and if there were renewals. But then further, that information gave us the ability to determine which works, if any, were uh, going to be coming up for terminations. So. Jeannie kind of mentioned termination a little bit. Works now, 1984. There's those that are early, but now the 1984 works on, they're eligible for termination domestically. So when we termination, terminate a transfer in the US, we terminate a we as, as uh, United States citizens, we have the right for a US registered copyright to file a notice of termination with the copyright office, and then it it has to be recorded, it has to be sent to the publisher, and then you are able, in many cases, to acquire those U.S. rights, reacquire the U.S. rights. It's not uh, uh, all of the world, it's not worldwide. It's specific, the U.S. copyright is specific law, specific to U.S. However, this won't affect you directly, but 25 years post-death, there are the British reversionary territories. So your heirs, 25 years after your death, may be able to recapture rights in the UK, 
UK and Canada and in a variety of other territories. And that's very unique. Though that can be lucrative. And it's also important in terms of giving them the ability to control some of the licenses. So it's not just financial, it's also um, kind of emotional in a way, because these are the babies. These works are, you know, as a composer, they're the babies, as the family, these are they're they're meaningful. It's not just about the So having the right to control is also, I think, very um, okay, so so we have the database of our materials, we had our Thompson and Thompson list, we had the Termination dates, so we are all pre prepared for that. Now, for the terminations, I highly recommend if you're approaching that window, I highly recommend you find an attorney or contact the SGA. Sam Fine over the Songwriters Guild of America is really great about assisting um, composers and their estates with identifying which works are coming into the window, and then he will also file. For the, simply for the, co the cost of the copyright registration, it's in charge of anything the copyright, or the, the filing of the copyright office. Um, okay, so then we have, so, so what Jean spoke of was a database that is text-based, right? So it's a text that says, hey, this work is called Spartacus Love. But the other thing I think is super important is a searchable audio so, for example, um, Source Audio is one. Uh, we just started using one called Disco. And these are ones that allow us to record audio. We can have all the metadata we want. So it's a searchable audio database now. So that is <coughs> we want to, as, as people who control copyrights, we want licenses. That's how we get our money, right? So having these databases that allow you, A, to search, to audition, to download, but also to share playlists. So you can create playlists. Somebody says, I'm really interested in 1950s jazz or Americana. So I say, well, okay, we have the Sounder soundtrack and we have whatever, the American work. So then we can go through, we can search the cues from those scores, and then I can send the playlist to whomever is interested in the list. So I do highly recommend you include that in your work. Okay, so Jeannie mentioned the PR audition. Uh, it's extraordinarily important that you register your works at your PRL. Most of you, I suspect, are affiliated with a domestic PRL, ASCAP, BMI, CSAT, GMR, whatever. Some of you also may be affiliated with society's ex-US. Can I, who here, is has has another society collecting. Which society? Gema. Gema. Okay. So you're German. Yep. It's just Hungarian one. Okay. Some publishing in Sasson. Okay. So, but did you put your writer affiliation? That's okay. PRS. PRS. And so you have PRS collecting in the UK and Ireland, let's say. Yes. Okay. All right. So, so one of the things to consider as a composer and a publisher is Sassem is one of the, I think Game as well, Sassem is one of the few PROs that has a pension. So as a composer, if you are affiliated at Sassem and you have works that have performance in France, a part of that performance goes into a pension. And that pension keeps growing until you turn 60, at which point you're able to start going. 
Now that pen says it is for both the writer's side and the publisher's side. So if you are self-publishing and you are able to, Sasem is trickier on the, to, to affiliate as a publisher is somewhat tricky, less so as a writer, but that is one of those things I highly recommend. Now, if you are administering your own publisher, you need to be able to collapse. So publishers can collect mechanicals, writers cannot collect mechanicals. If you are going to self-administer your publishing, you must have a publishing entity. And you want to affiliate with Harry Fox agencies, you want to affiliate CMRA in Canada, you want to get any other mechanical society you can, and then PRS, better PRS guide, yeah. So PRS is one of the easier societies to affiliate with as both writer and publisher. SOCAN in uh, Canada, super easy. Highly recommend it. I highly recommend affiliating with as many societies as you can because that's how you can most accurately uh, track your works. Now, Jeannie mentioned if you want to register your works with the PRS, but further, it's super important that every couple of years, you look at the registrations and make sure that nobody's added their name on as a co-writer, nobody has added themselves on as a publisher. You need to monitor, you need to sweep the data every couple of years because it does change. With a work like ours with Unchained Melody, that's it. So Unchained Melody, at Harry Fox Agency right now, there are, I think, around 10 different Unchained Melodies. They're all ours, but people who are the artists have mistakenly put themselves on as either publisher or something. And so we're seeing names that are not Alex Norm or Isaac. So every so often I have to send the email to our contact with Harry Fox saying this isn't them, this this is us. It's us. <laughs> and you know, fortunately with the work like Unchained Melody, there aren't that many Unchained Melodies in the world. <laughs> Typically it's us. Okay. So um, that's the other thing. So now coming back to the PRO thing, one of the and film composers, is they will roll your works, I assume most of you know it, but they're gonna roll your works into one. So let's say it's Spartacus, every single cue from Spartacus is going to be under that one work I made. That's a problem for us, because every single movie that I know has a main title. And every single movie that I know of has an end credits. So if your works are registered as Spartacus, that's great. But if you're going to separate out the cues, which I absolutely recommend you do, you want to make sure it's Spartacus main title, Spartacus end title. We always need to know what movie or what television show that work is from. So it's really important that you keep, and I do it in the beginning of the file name because foreign societies will truncate the file names. Okay, so if, if it's from Virginia Woolf, what we started doing actually with Alice's works, and is, or with a lot of our composers actually, is we will put the composer's initials, then a, the initials of the project, and then the name of the cube. And that way, if the uh, title gets truncated, we still know it's this composer, it's this project. So at least we know who to pick. Um, okay. Uh, then we have, okay, so we talked, I, I talked about Harry Fox here. Again, you can only collect your mechanicals as a publisher. You cannot collect mechanicals as a writer. 
So if you want to not leave money on the table, be a publisher. Uh, and then the other thing is, you almost certainly are going to need a, a network of sub-publishers outside of the US for certain territories. Canada you can do, UK you can do, sometimes you know, if you're German you can be in, at GEMA, sometimes if you're you know, Spanish or Italian you can do that, but for the most part, there you, you want to, like for example in Japan, it's very, very helpful to have a Japanese sub-publisher deal with Jazz Rock, the society. Jazz Rock's not an easy society to deal with. Their, their copyright is different. Their, their system of sync, <coughs> me, sync is totally different. So it's it would be it's it's, it's smarter to pay it's more lucrative to pay a sub-publisher 15% if they're going to truly collect from you as opposed to you collecting 100% of maybe not that much. So I highly recommend the sub-publishers. Um, in fact, it's, it's very important. Okay, so the other thing is so now we've got digital happening. We got streaming. Happening. This is a relative, you know, relatively new. We have MediaNet, we have Music Reports, we have, um, those are two, they, they administer mechanicals for a bunch of the streaming services, let's say Amazon, let's say Deezer, Apple, Spotify. You must register your work with Music Reports, with MediaNet. You also want to register them with every single entity that licenses so when when Joe Schmo is recording, you know your work, they have to get a mechanical license. Joe has to get a mechanical license. Where is he going to go? It used to be he would pretty much just go to Harry Fox, but now there's Louder FM, and now there's like CD Baby is doing mechanical licensing and whatever. Uh, there's the new one, STEM, I think it's called. You must put get your database of works, the the text-based list of your works, to all these societies so they know who to pay. Um, one of the things we've been doing is creating our own masters. So when somebody comes to me and they say, hey, we'd love to use uh, Unchained Melody, can't really afford the Righteous Brothers, I got master recordings. It gives me leverage in terms of quoting, right? If I control both the composition and the sound recording, I have a lot of leverage in terms of, of my sync quotes. Then we have, we say, well, what's next? What can we do? How about other so Unchained Melody is already in, I don't know, 25 different languages. It's been adapted. But then we get guys like Mike Lay, and we say, hey, Mike, let's do a Boston Open version of Unchained These are really cool when you have, we have these like remarkable musicians, and then we can have these remarkable new master recordings of our works, which we can then pitch. It gives us a whole other reason to go out and send a pitch. Because it's freaking Unchained Melody. Like, really? If you not know Unchained, you do know it. If I go, well, wait a minute, if it's my Hoxanova mask, it's a whole new reason for me to put it on someone to play. And, and that's a good thing. Um, and that's my time. Okay, so. <laughs>
because of my plan. Um, I'm very, I'm very forced. Uh, I'm very thankful. Okay, so, so multiple styles, uh, sheet music. Now, we have a new composer we're working with, and he's been doing these uh, public domain works, and he's been arranging them in various Latin styles. He has been creating his own sheet music, and then he does, he, he provides a CD that has a mix minus recording. So you can get the sheet music, you can learn how to play it, and then you can play it with the track. I absolutely recommend that kind of thing. You need to create your own strings. You need to, when I say strings, I mean the rhythm. And then quickly, I'll do one more. Do not forget YouTube. YouTube is, while it may be uh, kind of poo-pooed and, and it's got a bad rap, there is so much money in YouTube. There is so much money there. You want your stuff as much as possible to get your stuff out there. It's A, a great way to uh, have little pennies trickle down in the sky, but also it's a great way for people to find you. If you're doing something that's really interesting and you've got music that you want people to hear, YouTube is absolutely fantastic. Now one statistic I just heard today about Spotify, it's great to get on the Spotify playlist. It will turn into strings, but what it won't do is convert you will not find those people who are streaming your works on Spotify that are being sort of force-fed via playlists. They're not going to be your fan, but at YouTube, they will. So do not forget YouTube. And Jeannie had sort of made one comment about pirated all over YouTube. That's not really a thing. What we want to do, and this is, I, I mentioned putting your works in to Harry Fox, getting your works on those sites, get your works YouTube. When you get your works to YouTube, you will, when I say get your works, I mean get your data for the compositions and then also your audio recordings. You will then, you're by doing that, you're giving them the license, you're giving the users the license to synchronize your works, right? But then you collect. You're going to collect ad revenue. You collect um, from YouTube Red. And pretty much every time, like there's caveats, but pretty much every time there's a stream, you get a little bit of
And so one of the things, you know, when, when we have something like that, and we, we also have the Led Zeppelin catalog and uh, the Rolling Stones, and, and so it's a great way in our market to bring those artists, those groups, to a brand new generation who weren't even born at the time that the Rolling Stones were at their height or when Gershwin was, um, you know, uh, alive. But we can do it through a, an enormous amount of print medium through, you know, you, you take something like, um, uh, I don't know, um, So Wonderful, and you can do a young string arrangement of it, a, a full orchestra arrangement of it, a grade one concert band arrangement, a grade four concert band arrangement. You can do uh, easy piano, five note piano. You, you can take all of these things, which is what we do with John Williams' Star Wars theme, um, with you know who el whoever else it will, you know, might be, whatever, and we're able to bring those composers, those pieces to a whole new audience. Um, through the publication and arrangements that it, you know, the various um, areas that we publish. I will say that if you're going into publishing or you have that aspiration, it, it's important to know the market that you're writing for if you're looking to sell your publications or sell your arrangements. I can also say that our biggest area, the educational area, is by far the most lucrative of any area out there, just because of the number of um, middle school bands, high school bands, jazz bands, you have hundreds of thousands of bands across the country, across the world, who are in school music programs or whatever, who are always buying new music. And so that is where the sales are. The sales are in the educational market, and further, it's the easier the grade level, the more you're gonna sell. If it's a grade one, two, or so, you're gonna sell twice as much as a grade three or four, because you have far more people who are starting off at a beginning level, who may or may not stick it out for more than a year or two or whatever, and then either lose interest or move on to something else. And so, therefore, everybody will buy a beginning drum book, everybody will buy a beginning guitar book, but, you know, they'll start and they'll either lose interest or they figure that they know enough now to continue on their own and stop. So book twos typically sell about 25% of what a book one will sell. And if you're writing it at a younger grade level, you're gonna make, um, you're gonna have produce more sales um, than at the upper level. Um, the other thing, if, if, if you have publishing material, it, it's kind of where, where we're starting to kind of stray away from, you know, publishing a lot of material, much less than we used to, just because the market is shrinking a little bit. I think the statistics are that um, print music publishing is decreasing by about two or three percentage points a year. But what we are getting more into is distribution. And so for those folks who have um, pieces, whether they're in concert band or Coral or whatever it is, um, that may be a, an avenue that you want to consider exploring because uh, the plus side is is that you get to keep the copyrights for your material, and we don't have the the expense of 
you know, producing, you know, doing all that kind of stuff with, and, and not knowing if it's going to make money or not. So the risk is, is actually um, minimized on both sides. But the bigger part of being uh, distributed by a company such as Alfred is that, you know, we already have the mechanism in place. I think there are a lot of people who think that they can, you know, publish their own stuff. And some of them are, are successful at it, but they don't have the dealer network or the contacts. They're not, you know, doing 150 conventions around the world a year where, you know, the, the product is being distributed. You know, they don't have the money to record all the new music and send out those CDs to 30,000 band directors and string directors across the United States. Um, you know, they don't have access to, um, you know, the brick and mortar um, shops, uh, Amazon, everything that we publish is on Amazon. So, you might want to consider a distribution thing, it's kind of a win-win thing. Um, the other couple of things I wanted to, to mention are uh, just even with, um, we're talking about registering with, you know, whoever, you know, associated performance rights organization you're with, even um, educational things, please register those. I have written many, many concert band pieces and string orchestra pieces where I get ASCAP royalties because some junior high or some college wind ensemble performed it at one of their concerts, sent in the program or whatever, and I get credit and or pay for it. So even if it's something like a, a, a PD arrangement of Jingle Bells, a, you know, you should register that arrangement because if that arrangement is recorded by a wind ensemble, performed live, um, you, you can get paid for it and you can get paid handsomely for it. The other thing that um, is kind of, um, you know, we're talking about just ways to make money. Um, you know, the sound libraries now are a, a hugely popular way to try and write something so that it gets picked up in TV, um, film, um, because, you know, the budgets there are uh, diminishing, they're not using large orchestras, they don't have the money to license Unchained Melody, so they want something that sounds like that or whatever that they can get for a very reasonable price, and so you're seeing lots and lots of um, sound library um, houses popping up where people kind of just do nothing but write in the style of this and the style of that. You know, they, they submit them to these libraries with the hope that they are going to get picked or whatever and that they'll get some money out of that. And I know John Kakavis was a, a dear friend of mine. I, I think most of you know who John uh, is. He was with Alfred Publishing for many years. I, edited his stuff for probably 20 years. He was a master at the sound library thing, working with um, uh, agencies in Europe or whatever, where he and Hal David would write songs that are in the style of this, this, and this. They would record them, they would send them um, to these sound libraries, and he did quite well financially because he did so much of it and was constantly doing it and, and sending them out or whatever that he, he, he did do pretty well. Um, so there's another avenue to um, approach as well. Um, how am I doing time-wise? Okay. Okay, so from...
affected by that. As you know, major publishers have CDs, DVDs that are packaged with their books. That's all going away now. It's all uh, going to streaming. So those books do have CDs and DVDs. We are now taking them out and making streaming available online. So there's either a code in the book or they have to go to the streaming platform or whatever and be given a, a code. The problem is in the digital era, as you all might uh, well imagine, is just the number of books or pieces that we are finding online that are available for free. I mean, whole books where people just cut the spine and put it in a digital feeder and um, any number of our books you can find online, entire books and whatever. So that's part of the reason why there's a, a, a diminished return in the, in the publishing industry is because it's very hard to stop that. Once somebody hits a button, a PDF of a book or whatever, it's out there for everybody to have. So there's no uh, motivation to buy a copy of the book anymore. And so, um, you know, there are companies that have full-time people who sit there and monitor the internet sites or whatever and do system uh, and deceased um, actions or whatever. I suggest that you do that. I su suggest that you be vigilant about checking to make sure that your um, works are properly, you know, uh, you know, either um, put online or and that they have the proper permission. Otherwise, you know, somebody is. Um, it's a hard battle to fight because you've got people who are working out of their bedrooms, you know, in India and Russia. It, it's just very hard to go after them. So, you know, one of the things that we try and do as, a, as an educational music publisher is to try and educate this generation of young um, adults and kids or whatever that intellectual property is not free. Somebody wrote this, somebody work hard for it. This is how people made a living and to respect that and that it's not free. You were growing up doing that file sharing or whatever, but it's not right and it, it's, it's you know, this is how people make a living. So part of what we're trying to do is go back to the basics and educate people as to what intellectual property is and that it is not free. Hoping that at some point we'll be able to slow down um, Know, the, the copying and, and the, the, the selling online. We even have people who will um, print, uh, you know, have a digital copy, print our books or whatever, and then sell them as if they are the publisher or the <laughs> distributor. And so we have our lawyers all the time going after those folks or whatever, saying, you're not, you know, you're not a distributor, you're not the publisher of this book, yet you're selling thousands of copies of it out of your music store or your home. Um, so anyway, just a, a couple of things to, to think about. Thank you.
not been done before, particularly chamber music, because in general, there wasn't a lot of music for voice and guitar, or there were certain pieces performed. So when I was in England, I did some, um, I would call them prestige publications, uh, Fabuzi and Hawks, I arranged uh, some Britain folk song arrangements, some Aaron Copeland old American songs, a Greek composer, uh, a, a Hungarian composer named Matja Scheiber. For uh, another company, uh, Chester Music, I arranged some Kulon. Again, they owned all of these uh, copyrights, and the only way they could possibly get out there is if I worked with them. And so I was paid a particular one-time fee to do these arrangements, and it was a great experience. I really enjoyed having them out there, and it felt good to make these arrangements and expand it out. When I came back here, I was focusing a great deal on um, copy music for feature films and working as a copyist for many, many years. I still do that as it comes in, but that was my main focus of attention. But the guitar never went away. I always had a great interest in that. And over a period of uh, 30 years, I did a lot of arrangements involving guitar, guitar and chamber ensemble for this combination. So it's like a, a little niche because I was taking what were basically works that require a very good technique or a virtuosic technique and expanding out and trying to expand out the repertoire and getting people to perform it with good results. Um, about five years ago, I formed a great relationship with a company called ClearNote, which is based out in Ohio, a gentleman named Carl Wolf. Carl uh, has a whole publishing connection and everything. He does a lot with guitar, but he also um, does a lot with a lot of different companies, too. So um, I also established a relationship with a um, Bulgarian girl named Elena Valcheva, who, like me, was an excellent guitarist, as was her husband, but she was also a magnificent um, copyist and, and, and engraver. And uh, I was familiar with the Australian program that I used for my purposes, but it was outdated for the kind of work a publisher would want. So she was quite proficient in both Finale and Sibelius, and she worked out the formatting that was required by this particular publisher, and we began to, uh, to work together. I had all, at that point arranged something like 16 and a half thousand pages of music, which were all done by hand. And so over a six year period, I spent my own money and I have all of that engraved out, which involved charity, involved a lot of different works. And then started to have a lot of performances. Um, anyway, uh, the way I basically set it up in my case is that um, I worked on certain material that was public domain that I wanted out I would prepare, I would send her the manuscripts, which I all, I did by hand. Uh, it was then sent to her, she engraved them out, she was virtually perfect every time, a few changes worked out great. And then I would have both the uh, finale finals and the PDFs. It had already been established the formatting of this particular company. They did the artwork and so forth and put it out in very beautiful editions, uh, very beautiful paper, everything. I brought some examples over there so you can sort of see. So um, from a uh, classical approach, I was trying to also find a company or a publisher that shared the same aesthetic that I did. And in this particular case, uh, this particular publisher 
um, worked very, very well. They, uh, the way they presented it uh, went really great. So I've got a good working uh, relationship. And they also did things like, initially, uh, if I had to say, I, I arranged the tumble between the bell. And I arranged it for flute, oboe, clarinet, violin, guitar, double bass. Um, I had recorded this about 20, 22 years ago. And they put out, a, they, I, I let them put out a CD of some of my tracks, which could be in the back of the book. Now what they do is they have it available as a download, a simple download card. You go up, put in the code, and you have access once you purchase the publication to an online uh, copy of the recording. You got these up there. So um, it's fulfilled a certain need that I wanted to do in terms of expanding out the repertoire for the instrument and filling in things that needed to be done. And I continue to move that particular way, which is really, really great. Uh, they've also done this sort of a music minus one approach, which is very good. We took certain pieces, um, either um, I worked with a gentleman named Dominic Hauser. Uh, we did a quite a, a acceptable uh, uh, MIDI version of these coming back and playing them. And then a uh, separate part, so you could either purchase the orchestration or you could actually play along in a MIDI version with this. Of, of, of the composition, because that seemed to work quite well in the past for music minus one, so I wanted to expand out. So all, all these ideas are really very, very, very good. The rest of it, actually, I found um, there's a violin and, uh, I mean, a, a, a cello and guitar duo uh, that found a great interest in some of the arrangements I did. They made a new recording of some of the cello and guitar arrangements, and then they had a very fine videographer. And they went ahead and they shot video uh, playing back against this. And that scene, whenever that was online, people really latched onto this because it was, it was really quite good. In many cases, I put up some of my own money. Uh, there's a very fine uh, guitar and violin duo. Uh, they have recorded a couple of things up at a church in Newmarket, which was used for like four or 500 CDs. Newmarket is in uh, uh, Canada, and their engineer gentleman uh, named Norman Kraft does a great deal of uh, recordings for Naxos and also a great deal for guitar, two guitars, violin. So they wanted specifically to record at this particular church, and they wanted to record with this particular engineer. Uh, so I funded the recording. Went up there, and they did the recording. They did a magnificent job recording. Works of Foss and Zimanowski, um, a wide range of different things which were unusual on, on the guitar. And uh, it was very satisfying to, to do that process. So there's, there's a lot of money involved sometimes in putting these things out, but I got a lot of satisfaction. Uh, there's, a, there's a fine tenor in England named Ian Boswich, and I got a surprise that he had recorded two of my Britain arrangements at Abbey Road uh, for EMI release. To the folk song arrangements, and all of a sudden I said, "What am I said, Really, someone?" And, I, and there it was. I said, "Oh, nice." And Ian Bostrich is a great performer, so uh, it was a nice surprise. So anyway, um, that's been my focus. And so you know, if you folks are interested, feel free to look at some of the publications, and you can see it from a aesthetic standpoint the way I approached uh, publishing with, with the guitar. The other thing that was important too with a lot of guitar music, it's often just the notes and not so much articulations and phrasing like you'd expect.
expectancy in the piano part. So I went back and I made sure that as much as possible it was all those elements were in there. There were a series of Schubert, Schumann, and Brahms leader I published in several volumes. I went back and made sure all the markings you wanted to see in the piano part were carried over into the guitar part because there's a reason for them being there. It's all for interpretation. because I had a completely different career for 20, over 20 years as a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And my own radio show up in Seattle, and I was just on a different track completely. And when I moved back down to Los Angeles, I, I realized that my dad, who had worked like a dog his whole life, really didn't know what was happening with his publishing. I mean, he, he had no idea. And I only found this out because I'm kind of a, you know, curious questioner, and I would just ask questions, and, he, and it happened at the time when uh, Charlie's Angels, I think it was 2002, Charlie's Angels was just, they were just licensing the music for the, the three big movies that came out. And he had written the, the TV show uh, music. So I said, well, Dad, you know, don't, isn't there something in the, oh, I don't know, there's, I don't know what it is. You know, he just wanted to write music. So I, I remember saying, well, I think we have something like, you know, you should be, you know, I'm reading and trying to get up on all of it. I said, I think that we, we share, you know, something to do with the, the licensing fee. Oh, it's pennies. It's just pennies. <laughs> <laughs> well, come to find out, like, I kind of let it go, and I, I let it go, and, Years later, because he kind of pooh-poohed it. I figured, well, he knows what he's doing. I mean, you know, he's been around. I'm, I'm doing nothing in it. I, you know, I just kind of trying to observe and help him out. And uh, years later, come to find out, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars that didn't go to us, happened to go to a, a, a next partner. But um, so that was a that was a rude awakening. And um, at that point, I thought, you know. I really need to get in, like I did with my other work, my grad work in psychology, and learn everything I can about, you know, the, the publishing, the, the music, the things that he had done, because he really did work like a dog. I mean, he loved to write, and, and there were, you know, just all kinds of spec things, and things he had ideas, and he'd start this, and he'd start that, and I found things after he passed away in 2010 that were amazing. I knew, I didn't know he ever wrote, like three songs he had written you know, and recorded in the early 60s with Johnny Mathis. And, and, and I thought, and of course, we've never seen a dime for that. And um, just things that, that um, I really thought he had a handle on. So I'm coming from a different perspective. I mean, these are the pros here, you know, and it's, I'm really just like learning still and trying to, and, and so my, my whole focus has been read as much as you can, make lists as much as you can, the databases, like grab them everywhere you can and just, you know, I mix things up and I say, oh, okay, I'm going to mix it this way and that way and I just try to learn as much as I can about, um, uh, uh, you know, what the, the different uses and the different, different ways to, um, you know, I mean, just finding things that I, haven't been able to find for years. Um, 
you know, I looked up, um, what I've done is, is look up all the like tangential things that Abby, you were talking about, like all his agents and, and people that, that might have contracts. He had no contracts around. He had no, um, he had no, uh, what was it, uh, very few cue sheets around. I mean, just things that I thought, where are these things 50 years later? You know, so it's really been like hunting down things and I'm such a detailed person that it's hard for me to say, you know, to see all these blanks and, and not to be able to fill them in. So, I mean, it's really been a learning experience for me. And um, just to get in, I think now we have like 1,500 square feet of boxes. And the other day, I, un I opened up a box and I found uh, a huge stack of bound um, arrangements he had done for Johnny Mathis in the early 60s. And, and I thought, this is incredible in his own hand because he didn't think it was, he just didn't think of himself as important, like as far as I better sign this or I better, I mean, just, and he didn't think about later either, like this is going to be valuable or, or anything. He just, um, so I found all kinds of things that just, uh, I, I remember once in the, in the uh, 90s, I think it was, he was trying to make space and he, and he, he said, well, I've got these, these big masters, and he said, I think we've got them digitized. Let's just toss them in that dumpster over there. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not kidding. This is before I knew anything, and I was like, heave ho, <laughs> It's so, I mean, I have nightmares about this still. I have nightmares. Because, you know, the ones that we did keep, I could hear him, you know, doing his countdowns, and uh, they were really special. So you don't realize what you have, and I think it's really important, especially for heirs, that, that you know, that you, I don't know, keep track as best you can, you know, just be as detailed, and, and um, I'm developing a database now where I just keep adding, you know, something else to it, another way to categorize, and be able to cross-check and things, and I think it's, for me, that's been the most valuable, and just grabbing as much knowledge as I can, and, and um, looking up as much as I can. I mean, that's the main thing for me. Everybody's covered pretty much everything else because, you know, it's it's really just a learning experience and I'm just still doing a lot of learning. But, um, so that's that's really all I have to say. It's just coming from a different vantage point and realizing it's really important to keep track of this stuff. If, if anything else, it's just, it's history. You know, it, it's important history. So pay attention to detail and, and you know, I don't know, make lists and, and just keep keep organized. I cannot stress that enough about being organized. So let me just throw one thing in there. For those um, folks who don't want to keep older material or their parents have it or somebody has it, rather than throwing it out, there are people out there who are passionate about it, like Michael Feinstein, for one, with the, the great American Songbook Academy. He's got, I've been to his warehouse in Hollywood where, you know, he actually goes to these folks' house, houses or whatever, goes to the garage, takes the boxes himself, you know, keeps them in this huge warehouse in Hollywood, and he has full-time staff there who go through it and catalog it and, and everything else. So before you throw it out, 
try and find somebody like that, or the Motion Picture Academy, or somebody who would be willing to take it and catalog it, because there are people out there who will do it. Okay, so let's take a break for 10 minutes and come back, and we'll give you our five best uh, tips that I have to Thank you. questions and, and talk to us. We're available with email and phones and there are lots of ways to reach us. And I put my cards back there and I think some other people have put their contact information. But don't be shy about that. One great thing about ACTIC is that all of our board members and our members are very generous in making themselves available. And if you just need a little encouragement or support, or you have a question you were afraid to ask or something, don't hesitate to, to reach out to ask Mac and, and to our panelists today. Yeah. So we're going to have questions and answers in a little bit. But just before you start, mine is dblack at alfred.com, and I'm more than happy to answer any questions or to give any advice. So dblack at alfred.com, A-L-F-R-E-D. Okay, so we're going to start by each panelist going to give five uh, short uh, statements of advice. Okay, so you want to get your piece of paper out and write this down or your phone with the notes section or whatever. Okay, so first thing, anything and everything that you have on the internet related to your music, in the description, write available for licensing and the contact phone number. Put that on there. So you know, I was talking about pirating with quotes on YouTube because it, what I've been doing to people who have things on, on YouTube that they don't own is, first of all, you've got to register for the mechanical so you could get that money. But also, I've written them and said, would you please put in the description that th this music is composed by this person, arranged by this, available through this publishing company, and available for licensing, and other masters are available, and the contact phone number and an email address. And uh, most people are very happy to add that to, to the description that they have of their YouTube video or whatever. So, Try to harness what they've done as fans for your business purposes. And so anything that you have available on your website or anywhere else, put available for licensing and the information. Because the people who are looking for things to license and, and for various projects, and particularly film and television synchronization, they don't want to track you down and say, could, could we license this? If, if there's no chance, there's nothing, it's not available. It's a lot of work for them to do it, but if it says it's available and this is how you do it, they're more likely to call you and, and not have to search it out. So put it down that it's available for licensing. So, okay, some other things. I'm, I'm a, a PC person, and uh, so I, uh, the cheapest scanner that does 11 by 17 are produced by Brothers. I bought one for $129 using Amazon Prime. Uh, if, if you don't have a, a large bed scanner and you've got to get started getting your stuff scanned, the, I would check out the Brothers one. The comparable one with HP is about $800. So uh, for $129 plus tax, 
you can do really well. So I, I don't get paid to promote brothers or any of these other vendors, but I, I've had really good luck with those. And I, I think that if you're just starting out and you don't have a lot of money, that's, that's a reasonable way to go. And it will handle heavy paper. So that leads me to tell you, if you don't know about Kelly Paper online or the stores, find them. They will do custom sizes. So if you want to put your parts on heavier stock, they will they will make this supply for you. You can get an off-white color that's easier on the eye for the musicians and all of that. And you don't have to buy large quantities of paper to really get a good price. So Kelly Paper. So, also, do you know about Adobe Acrobat Pro DC? It's a new program they released this summer that allows you to do really high-level editing of PDFs. And the reason this is so important is that if you create a PDF of your scores and parts and Sibelius or Finale, old ones, and you can't access the original file, but you have the PDF or you scan a print out of it and make a PDF out of it, this gives you the ability to edit the PDF, and it, it's almost as good as using a word processing program, and in some ways better because it allows you to enter graphics and color and all kinds of things to manipulate a, piece, uh, a PDF. So that new software, and you can download a trial for 30 days and, and test it out. So if you're working in the PDF world, uh, invest in that software. I, I found it very useful for taking things that were created in the 80s and, and, and uh, earlier and manipulating it on the screen to make something printable. Okay, so I also say if you don't have a website for yourself as a composer, I've been using really, really cheap websites on Wix.com, W-I-X.com, and it, it's a very useful tool, and they have uh, cheap and free packages for sound files, video files, and a really low, cheap package for a store. So if you want to start selling PDFs of your scores and parts direct to the public, the interface is very easy to run and it's very inexpensive, so I, I would recommend that. I'd also tell you to digitize your cassettes. Us old timers who have lots of cassettes that we made for reference, or in my case, I was on the radio for 20 years and I have 20 years of radio air checks that are in cassette format. And I bought a refurbished cassette deck that has Dolby A, B, and C, and I use Audacity, which is a free downloadable program, and it's really simple, and you can, you can teach a kid to edit these things and, and do the transfers. And it's, I'm having great luck digitizing cassettes from the 70s. Everybody said, oh, those will never work, they'll break, and the sound is horrible. Not true. I haven't had a single one break, and I'm talking 700 cassettes, so uh, I would recommend it. And you know, um, if these things, you, you'll find that you probably have all kinds of audio that you didn't know you had, of live performances and things like that, and you may be able to use them now in ways that 30 years ago you, it never occurred to you. Then the final thing is, is um, I file all my programs, flyers, newspaper, magazine articles related to my career. 
in loose-leaf notebooks with plastic sleeves in chronological order. So, I mean, that sounds sort of overwhelming, but it's really been useful because what I do is just make a binder and I put 1995 on it. Everything I find 95, I put it in plastic sleeve and put it in that thing. And so, if, if I need to go and find something, and I only keep one of everything. I know lots of performers and musicians who kept 10 of this program and 40 of these flyers and 18 of this. And, you, and you've got boxes and boxes and boxes of papers in your garage, and it's just ridiculous. So I suggest that you take one copy, put it in a plastic sleeve in the year with that date on it, and, and, and start filing everything that way. And then currently, I, everything I have, I put in that binder. And at the end of the year, I put them all in plastic sleeves and make sure they're in date order. And I have them all the way back to when I started in the 60s. And it's very useful. But you only need one good copy. Throw out all the others. It's ridiculous. <laughs>
Um, and I do recommend including the IPI numbers now. Uh, not everybody will want them, but some people will. Uh, then in the grouping field, do uh, include the contact information for the composition and then the contact information for the master recording. So by contact information, at least an email address could be name, email address, and telephone number. Uh, and then in the comments <coughs> section, include all publisher information and then the own master information. So it could be in the grouping that, that it's a one-stop license, that one, let's say Secret Road is licensing the whole thing, but Secret Road is not the publisher and they're not the label. So, so in the grouping, you would have, let's say, so-and-so at Secret Road, but then in the comments section, you would include who the actual original publishers are and who the master owner is. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, and I got six. I hope that's okay. Oh, that's just
the artist gets part, and then the, the sound recording owner gets part, and that's for uh, performance on Sirius XM, for Pandora, and for other webcasters. So make sure when I, I, I mentioned registration, get your works registered there as well. That's it.
Yes, budgets, as Dave had mentioned, budgets have gone way down and competition has gone way up. Everybody, every one of us in this room has worked for trying to license, and that's that drives competition, that creates competition that drives prices down. Well, and we also know that in the digital world or whatever, that the amount of money that writers are getting from digital, you know, um, performance rights or, and so on are, are nothing you see on Facebook all the time. Somebody, you know, posting a 16-page, you know, royalty statement or whatever, and they get $2.30 at the end of all that. So it, it, it is uh, diminished quite a bit and continues to for a number of reasons. But I, I gotta say, I feel like things have begun to stabilize for the most part, and I think this is the trend we're seeing. Not in synchronization. I don't think sync is gonna go like this. I, that's my personal forecast. And again, it's because there's so much music out there now. And you even mentioned, I think, saying, hey, you know, if you want to create a, an Unchained Melody sound alike, right. that's the thing. We have all these amazingly gifted people here who can knock off everything. It's really hard to be original. And, and if you're not original, then it's hard to drive prices up. So I think that synchronization uh, is still a fantastic form of, uh, it's a great revenue, right? But in performance, it's going up. The overall pool of performance royalties is growing. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're gonna get more because there's like, you know, tomorrow there'll be another 75 people here who are collecting our royalties. Um, so there's a lot more people collecting the royalties, but the overall pools are growing. The pools at Spotify are growing, the pools at Apple, it's all growing. It's just that there's so many more people now, so much more. Let, let me just add on to what um, Abby said. It, let me give you one statistic in the publishing, in the print publishing world. Everybody thinks everything's going digitally, which in some cases it is recordings, of newspapers, magazines, but I can tell you as the second largest print music publisher or whatever that only 2% of our entire catalog sales are digital. The other 98% is still print music product. And, you know, music teachers, musicians are a different breed. You know, we all like to have the page open. We all like to circle the, um, you know, the exercises or, or write notes and stuff. So it, it's not, it, it will get there. But I think people are surprised when I give them that statistic. They think that the, the balance is uh, much more digital than it actually is. The other thing that Abby mentioned was just the amount of music that's out there and how do you make it stand out and what, what you know, how, how do you even go about choosing? I, one of the figures that uh, I can give you is, you know, for new concert band music or wind ensemble music um, that comes out every year from all the major publishers, there's over 700 new concert band works published each year. You know, you know that a junior high band director, a high school band director, orchestra director, they're not going to sit down and listen to 700 um, pieces or whatever to try and decide what they want to perform or buy for their schools. So they tend to either go by, you know, a particular composer or arranger that they like, or a particular series that, uh, uh, you know, one of the major publishers publishes. So, you know, that's one of the, the, the crucial challenges that we have as writers is that with so much out there, whatever, how do we make our, 
stand out? How do we get people to listen to it? How, you know, how can we break through the amount of stuff that's already um, out there? And it, it's challenging, even for a major publisher like Alfred Music. So your five um, points of advice? Mine are just quick. I just kind of, you know, the first one, I think it's important to follow your passion. Second, make plenty of contacts. Third, spot a gap in the market. That's what I tell writers all the time, you know, that are shopping an idea for a book or a book in itself. My first question is, well, have you done the research to see if there's anything out there already on the market? If so, why, what did you write this, whatever? What is different about yours that is not out there, whatever, that would want you know, Alfred or me to accept that for a publication. So I think you have to know what you're writing for and what is out there. And not, you know, you can go to websites and, and, and look to see what kind of music is out there, or a particular kind of book, whether it's a guitar book, a drum book, whatever, and see if something already exists. And if it does, how is yours gonna be different or better than what's already published? Um, focus on quality, I think that's probably something that slide for. And then the last one is develop what your target audience wants more of. That's a, a very big point. Um, you know, knowing what the market is, um, knowing who your market is, and what are your goals? Is your goals just to make uh, good music available and, and the, uh, the, the primary goal is not to make money or is it, the, you know, to make it available because for art's sake. Or is it, is it, you know, in Alfred's case or whatever, I mean, there are a million things that I think are amazing pieces of things that I'd like to publish, but I know it won't generate enough money to, to warrant that. And I have to remember that we are in a, the business of making money. And so you have to kind of determine what your goal is and, and work from there and find out where the market is and how to get to it. And then just two other quick things um, related to if you're posting your own music um, online or um, audio recordings, I would suggest not putting a complete PDF of a piece online, whatever. Put one or two pages. And we do put watermarks on. We've tried several different kinds, um, and, and we've had pretty good success. I know that there are a lot of people um, that are, are good at removing those watermarks, but it, it's a deterrent because it's a lot of work to have to do it. If somebody needs to see, you know, more of that piece or whatever in order to make a, a determination as to whether they want to perform it or buy it or whatever, they can all, always contact you directly and ask you to send um, a full PDF, but I wouldn't just put it up there for everybody to kind of use it. The same thing with the recording. I would not put a full recording of anything up there. I would put 30 seconds worth, and then either they can buy a download of the full recording for 99 cents, or you know whatever you want to charge, or again contact for a full recording. Otherwise, you know one, once it's out there digitally, whatever it's it, it's done. So those are great just advice. Ones, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the five. Uh, once that I came up with, uh, first of all, again, because the guitar is quite a specific instrument, I'm focusing on that, uh, work with an engraver or a copyist who is intimately familiar with your 
try to avoid using overindulgent or fancy quote-unquote fonts. As sometimes <laughs> what happens, they'll lead to um, potential font conflicts. And I know like the particular publisher I'm working with, we may be sending it out to separate different computer platforms for printing you know, within, in the house. And if there's a problem, if you go too crazy, uh, sometimes it can be problems. Or if you're sending something to someone. Uh, if at all possible, this is sort of obvious, but use well-edited video clips whenever possible with motion. If you can obviously get someone professional, and hopefully not only a great performance, but also a great visual look. Um, I found a lot of people have responded wonderfully to something I've done, uh, just because, oh, now I can see it, I can hear it, and uh, that's where the YouTube whole thing really comes in very, very handy. Um, in terms of layout or something in the book, I always like to provide a foreword or some sort of information about the composer, about the piece, even a partial or a half page, it is very useful. Someone's just going to pick it up and look at it suddenly and see what's, uh, what's about. Or on the back of the publications, it might have a bio above me at the top, but then there is basically the same forward on the back. So people can just see it, they can read it, and they can see it. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Very good point. <laughs> and um, always, uh, we talked about it earlier, uh, if you are doing something against the guitar or any instrument, Always try to include as much phrasing, articulation markings as possible because you as the arranger want to convey as much as possible uh, performance elements to someone because you're going to be communicating with people of all different levels. And so um, if you take the, the approach that you're giving without cluttering up too much, as much good information to people, then when they, they, they're more likely to the music and uh, they can see the complete picture of what you're trying to, to present. Thank you. Jim? Oh, okay. Well, mine is, is kind of like uh, what I was saying before is I spend a couple hours a week, and I was told this originally when I started trying to look for some of my dad's works. We have over a thousand titles, and so a lot of them are older, but um, I would, I spend time just looking everywhere for things. I found something he wrote for Buddy Rich in, in the 60s, Diabolus, used by a Chicago dance company. And it was just something out of the blue, but it was just, it was really exciting to find and, and to hear it and, and to, you know, someplace where, of course, we, we were never notified or anything, but I mean, just to be able to find it um, was really, really nice. And so I just look everywhere all the time and, and um, see all the places um, that things are being sold. Like a lot of times, a lot of dad's movies were, you know, made into movies 10 years later that, you know, they were read this, you know, let out again and, and released. And, you know, I didn't know about, so I want to, like I ordered everything I can find online, one of these so I can track all these things down. So especially if you're dealing with an older, larger catalog. And, um, Anytime I find something on YouTube, I make a comment, just like you were saying. Make a comment, just, you know, I don't care. It's like, uh, could you please list, you know. Um, and um, also, uh, um, or I've taken, I think we, we co-publish or, or other publishers, um, we, we deal with like 50 other publishers that 
have some of Dad's works, and so um, I, I make up, you know, all the titles that are handled by each one, and I just rework things and, and do things as best I can, and, and you know, pay attention to it. Um, also, networking and things like that. Make, I make a list of like all the, the different associations and things that have great seminars and workshops to go to and, and go to them and meet people and, and network. You just never know who you're gonna you know, find and talk to and just, it's interesting to me. Um, so, uh, and there are hundreds of, of places and things to do. So um, that, I mean, you know, Dean's List, for instance, that's a great site where you go and he's collected, Barnaby uh, Publishing, he's collected all the, you know, these, these good links to, to keep up on things. It, it's really, it's fun, I like to read it every morning. Um, and, uh, uh, let's see, what else, other things that I say? Um, well, I don't know, never procrastinate. If you want to do something, do it today. Don't say, <laughs> They must be submitted in either Finale or Sibelius. And if you're writing performance music, you must have a recording to accompany it. We've tried that, you know, with, with, with the current hit on the radio where we didn't have time to get in there and record, uh, you know, the arrangement because we wanted to hit the, the market when it was hot or whatever. And, you know, it never felt that the sales of the go down dramatically because people need and want to hear a recording. Even if it's just a good mini recording, it's something. Um, but don't try and sell something, a performance piece or whatever, without a recording. So that's a good segue to the next part of our discussion, which is acceptable risk and about using the recordings. Chuck, you had a question first? Yeah, for the first post. Sell or rent? For mm -hmm. putting the music out there, better to sell it or to rent it? Um, that's a good question. It, it depends. Renting, because we have a rental catalog as well, it, renting is usually for the higher end orchestras and stuff who want to do, uh, you know, many moods of Christmas or want to do sweet from, you know, Spartacus or. Uh, Gone with the Wind, um, you know, so the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, a major college orchestra, whatever, will rent it at that point or whatever. And usually, you know, they'll rent for like $700, where you send them the, the score and the parts or whatever, you know, they perform the piece, they've given us whatever the fee is, $700, $800, whatever it is, send it back to us, and then, you know, we keep repurposing that and sending it out. Um, so it, it, it's good money right up front or whatever. If you're publishing something, you know, it, it, it's a crapshoot. It could be very successful in which you could make a lot of money or it could sell 10 copies and, um, you know, that's, that's what it is. Um, for the more difficult stuff, I would recommend renting it because the sales of the more difficult pieces uh, are not high. If you want to write in the young band, or the young um, 
school market or whatever, then publishing is a good thing. Because even if you don't sell a boatload of music, just the fact that your piece is included on a CD that's sent out to 30,000 schools or whatever is, is a big thing. It's, often, it's a good promotion for you. I mean, somebody may not buy the piece, but they'll see your name, they may hear your piece or whatever. So, and also a, a good thing to be able to put on your resume that you're published by a major publisher. I think that is one thing that really opens the doors for a lot of people because now you have some kind of credibility that's you know concrete and stuff. I'm a published you know, writer, an author by a major publisher, whatever. Now somebody, you've got their ear, whatever, when they want to know what your credentials are, have you been published in the past, um, you know, what, what have you done or whatever, that's the first step in the door. So, does that answer Chuck? Yep. So let's talk about acceptable risk. So this is sort of a complicated question, and I want to hear from our panelists and from some of you about it. Um, what do we consider to be ex ex uh, acceptable level of risk when we're dealing with these materials? So I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I represent the composer Zenobia Pal Perry, an African-American Creek Indian woman who died in 2004. So she was in her 90s. I have a recording that was made in a church in 1970 of a major work of hers, that is uh, SATV uh, and the soloist, big choir, organ, and uh, some instruments. It's a wonderful recording. So that church is sti it's still in existence, but of course that 50 years ago, 45 years ago, that it's not the same music director, the same people in the choir. And trying to get somebody to give me permission to put that recording up online so people could hear this amazing work of hers, is, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get anybody to give me that permission. So. I considered it acceptable risk to make that recording available. And I, I give as many credits as I can for it, and it's the way that I market that piece and make it available. And it's it was one of, I transferred it from a cassette and was able to get a good quality out of it, but I'm never gonna get permission from anybody to do that. So I considered that to be acceptable risk. I, I know in talking to some composers, that if they have a performance of, a, of an ensemble and, they, and there's a great videotape of it, they want to have that put up on the internet so everybody can hear the piece. But the permissions of the players and on and on weren't obtained. So what are, what's the risk? And is it worth taking that risk? And what, could, what are the bad things that could happen to you? And what are the good things? And how do you make that? decision. Um, one composer told me that the way he gets around that is to have the ensemble put it up on YouTube and link it to his site. So he wasn't responsible for putting the video up. He's just linking to it. So he passes that responsibility on to somebody. I, I think the risk also increases when you're selling something, a recording or whatever, as opposed to just using it for promotional use or whatever. There's a huge difference there, whatever. And I think the, the risk if you're selling something is high. And 
you have to be very careful. If it's for promotion, you know, reasons or whatever, and you've got the proper credits and stuff, most people or companies will allow you to do that, whatever, as long as you're giving the correct copyright and, you know, who recorded it or whatever. But once you start selling them, it's a whole different ballgame. Okay, so what about selling things? So what if the record company put out an LP in the 50s and they went out of business immediately, but you're the writer and the publisher, what do you do? Do you feel that it's an acceptable risk to reissue that LP, have it transferred, and take out a new digital copyright for that recording and put it out and claim ownership of the master? Well, I'm sorry, that's getting back to what Abby said earlier about it's easier sometimes to re-record the pieces. That way you own the master and you don't have to worry about who do I need to contact, who do I need to pay. That would be my recommendation is that if you have the ability to re-record it, then you completely own the master at that point and can do whatever you want with it. So I'll give you a different take on that. I agree with you. In some cases when it's financially, when it's reasonable financially and the players can pull it off, that's great. But what if you need it to sound, not to sound like it's from 1955, but you actually need it to be from 1955? So certain music supervisors will be working on period pieces and they'll say to you, we need something that's from 1971. They don't want something from 1985. They really want it to be from 1975. So that would be a case in which you would not do a re-record. So we have, there's a score that my father-in-law composed and recorded, I'm not going to name it because it would be risky. But the company that released it is, they're around, but the division, sorry, can I link to this? So the company that, the division of the company that released it, they don't exist any longer. There's no licenses around that we can rely on. So I am going to release this score and those sound recordings. I'm not necessarily going to file a copyright registration for those sound recordings. I'm not going to go that far. But I will put that recording out and I will collect money for it. Well, why not? Because you can file a new digital copyright on a digital version of something that was copywritten and released in another format. Okay, so yeah, to go beyond that, the sound recordings prior to 1972, they didn't have federal copyright protection. So yeah, I suppose I could go master, remaster, right? I have a new copyright. I could. I don't feel right. I wouldn't feel that was the right thing to do. That's why I wouldn't do it. There's another example that I was thinking of, which is, so Alex North composed 40 minutes of score for 2001 Space Odyssey. And then it was not used. There was a guy who had laid the track to picture and put it up on YouTube. So he took a risk by putting it up. And then, I mean, to me, that's a totally acceptable risk because the worst that happens is what happened, which is it got taken down. 
So the studio took it down. That to me, totally acceptable, but also really cool for the period of time that it didn't get taken down. It was really neat for people to be able to hear Alex's cues against picture, because you just don't get that chance very often. Any other comments? To the microphone, please. Um, I have a, a good friend that is in a situation right now where she wants to write a book about a luminary, somebody that's really legendary. And um, she really is in a bind because they're asking for information um, exactly like what you're talking about. Um, that she really can't provide, and it may not even be available about people that are no longer alive, that have to sign off on permissions for photographs and tunes or whatever um, that really aren't available because people can't get the permission. So, what should that person do? <laughs> I don't want to mention names. Call a lawyer. Yeah, I, I can yeah, speak to that a little bit because we've had to tighten our belt uh, with regard to photographs and, and stuff like that. We used to be able to do it if we thought we tried hard enough to reach the heirs or, or you know somebody who could give us permission and then it came back to haunt us seven years later when somebody who is an heir or whatever comes out of the woodwork or whatever and says, well, wait a minute, I saw this photo that you used and so on. And not we're talking about, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. It's a drum book that I uh, published a couple of years ago and um, was a drummer with Paul McCartney and Wings. And Paul McCartney wrote the foreword and he gave us permission to use some of the photos of Wings, the band in the book or whatever. And our uh, business affairs de department did not okay that or whatever because they wanted permission from everybody who was in that picture. And of course, Linda McCarthy, who was one of them, is no longer living. And so, even though Paul McCartney's company, who owns the photo or whatever, gave us permission to use it, our business affairs people did not want to take that chance or whatever because we had been burned before and request that now we get permission for anybody who was shown uh, in that picture, so it makes it difficult. You either, you know, have to go with a different picture, or you go without pictures, or, or whatever. But uh, yeah. Well, it, it's a different it, it's a different situation if you're the second largest music publisher in the world than if you're a self-published individual exactly. composer. Right. And the risks that an individual self-published composer might take are risks that a major publisher would not never consider. That's true. And as individual composers who publish, we don't have uh, funds to hire big corporate attorneys to consult with about these decisions. So I think, you know, it's a little different situation for individuals. Hi, about um, acceptable risk and um, like an individual composer with a, a YouTube channel and a website. I've been advised not to put my phone number out there. And what I heard you say today is it's so important to be easy to reach, so could you speak well, to you that can, a little bit more? You can have a Google phone number and the messages get transcribed. Uh -huh. 
So you don't have to have put your personal cell phone number up there, your home number, but you could have a Google phone number. Or, or you could for free. put your um, email address or your web address on there. I put the email address, that's what I've been doing, all contact through an email address. That was how I was advised as a safe way. My acceptable is, I don't have an extra phone number for that. I don't see that when I look at YouTube videos and websites. I don't see, I mean, I haven't been looking, but I don't always see a lot as far as phone numbers anyway. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the, the most important information to put on that is probably your website address, whatever, because you're trying to drive people who may be interested in your work or whatever to your website or whatever so that they can see what else you've done, what your background is. And the other thing is to encourage your friends or colleagues or whatever to comment on YouTube or you know to, to rate it you know this you know because as that happens or whatever it, it starts to kind of snowball and more and more people start to be become aware of what you're posting. But I think certainly your web address, possibly your um, email address, but hopefully your your web address has a contact thing on there, whatever, that allows somebody to put in their name uh, and their email address, and you can contact them without having, you know, to give out your email. So, so this would be sufficient. A absolutely. Thank you. I know I put on my uh, my website, uh, the developer who did it, who did it, the, uh, oh, got a very tired of my <laughs> On my website, a um, fellow who designed my website, uh, after about a minute or a minute and a half, a box comes up and encourages people to subscribe to a newsletter uh, or to give them contact information for that purpose. So that, that helps a great deal. But anything that I publish or that is published with uh, ClearNote, for instance, I may have um, the information on my website, I have a picture of it, I may have one page example, but I always purposely direct them for purchasing purposes back to ClearNote because I want to encourage them to focus on that particular publisher as the, um, as the source, which then encourages that publisher to want to continue to put things out as much as possible. So there's always a link back to that particular publisher. Yeah, and it, it, it's a smart idea to do that. You actually want contact information from those that are visiting your site because you want to build a database of, of people who either enjoy your material or who visit your site or whatever so that when you have something new that you want to release or an announcement that you want to make, you now have an email database that you can automatically send whatever out to those folks who you know have, have signed up on your uh, mailing list. Yeah, sometimes this company will do like an email blast. Right. Like they'll put together a newsletter or something specifically, yeah. and they'll, they'll send out to all the different contacts they have. Yeah, we do that as a major publisher all the time, whatever. It's cheaper because you're not paying for postage and, you know, all the other kinds of stuff. But we purchase email lists or we have our own, and it's important to do that so that we can do those kind of promotions. Aren't you, in fact, under contract to do that in much the same way that if you have an agent, you have to refer all the residuals back to that person? I mean, when you sign with a publisher, don't you have to basically refer work 
the aqueducts and such a commotion. Well, I'm asking all of you, but you were speaking about it specifically. So. Um, I just have, I have an agreement with this publisher that I do that. We have a verbal agreement to do that. And that works best because he's best then set up to fulfill their request for music that I put out with him. Uh, specifically the things that I put out. Or if it's a situation where I put something out in some limited ability, but then I decide to move with that publisher, I'll take it off of my website as far as being able to someone can, can download it or something like that or have it available. And I'll make sure it just goes with that particular publisher. Because uh, that, that, for me, works the best. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we talked about royalties, but I didn't mention if it's a distribution deal with a major publisher. Our standard distribution uh, deal is a 70-30 deal where um, it's based on um, uh, not the retail price, but wholesale. So the, the composer, the author, gets 70%, and we get 30% for you know, warehousing it, you know, selling it in our dealer site, putting it in our catalog, our sales reps, you know, promote it. Um, but they continue to own the copyright, but that's a pretty standard thing, the 70-30. And, it, and it's good because you can retain um, the, the copyright and you're, you're bound, usually the contracts are, can be anywhere from a year to three years and depending on how well it's doing and what the relationship is like between the composer and the publisher, you always have, um, you know, the, the ability to be able to get out of it sooner or later or renew it. So we welcome other questions. I want to say. Regarding the digital world, uh, I composed the film score for Sylvester Stallone movie, which was his first film, which I'm sorry to say was called Party Kitty and Studs. Anyway, the problem was I was renamed Italian Stallion. And I didn't want my name on there, so I called myself Kenny Odell. So uh, nobody knows that I did this. But the point is that I found a lot of people out of Arizona and Texas and all all the time to play the trailer and, uh, and the film, and I'm getting zero out of the deal. Is there anything I can do about this? Yes. We have. Well, in the print music publishing industry, whatever, we have a lot of people who do write under pseudonames because they publish a, a lot of publications a year or whatever, and we don't want people to think, okay, well, they're oversaturating the market or it's the same person, so they're, you know, they'll write three pieces, you know, under their real name and two under a pseudoname and two more under another pseudoname, and it's just to kind of, um, you know, balance out too much of one person out there, but they also register those pieces under their pseudonames or whatever. So I would suggest, I don't know if you can do it now, but you could have registered under the name that you wrote for whatever. I did. Okay. No, I, I, I'm the most unfamous composer as KV Odell, but I did register with ASCAP as KV Odell. Okay, but did, did you also say that you were that person and have yes. Okay. Yes, they know that. Okay. The only question is, are the performances on when they wrote on YouTube? There's like lots of hits on that show. Okay. So yeah. It, well, it, it depends. I mean, were you paid a flat fee 
the understanding that owned the publishing and the writing. With the understanding, does that mean an agreement, an actual written agreement? It was under the agreement that. Okay. That so yeah. So you would want to come to somebody like me or like AdRev or AdShare, and you would do a deal to um, get your your works into YouTube so that claims can be made. So if it was me, what happens is we do an agreement. You would give me the list of every one of the cues that are in that yes, movie. Yes, and then I would ingest them. Now you don't own the master recording, right? Just the right. composition. Okay. Right. So we would take the composition, and then what would happen is I would go in there and I would find every use of those works. So I would find those that movie and the trailers, and then I would claim them on your behalf. And then you would begin to collect. Now, um, the way it works with YouTube is if if some part of the audio has been claimed, meaning if the master recording has been claimed and ad revenue has been generated, you will collect retroactively. If no, uh, none of your co-owners have claimed anything, you will not collect anything retroactively, which will be collected from the point we make the claims forward. Very good, thank you very much. And then you have sort of panels and so informative. Here's something we haven't talked about, I wonder if it all affects us, but artificial intelligence. <laughs> and whether you want to open up that can of worms. Uh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, sure, definitely affects us, because there, there are software programs now that are composing music. So it, it does affect us because it's just more competition, and then, then there's those, th there are those questions of, well, who owns that copyright? If I license the software and that software creates music, am I the owner of the copyright? Is it the owner? You know what I mean? There's quite a bit that's involved with that. But I would say, let's stay away from it. Let's avoid it at all costs. Other questions? Anybody? One sound recording owner at YouTube. Uh, compositions can be split among multiple publishers. Does that answer the question? Okay, so if, if I'm the person who owns the sound recording, mm -hmm. uh, I will ingest both the actual sound recording and the data about that recording. Okay. Okay, and then there can only be, again, one sound recording owner at YouTube, which means if you, if your intention is to, let's say, split the revenue among all of the members, all the players, yeah. then let's say you would collect and then divvy it up. Especially these trailerized versions. 
Never. That's what I thought. Never. No, never. There is no, there is no publisher that I know that would ever give up part of the arrangement. However, well, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, can you imagine if someone came to me and said, you know, when I did a trailerized version of Unchained Melody, I think you should give me some of your composition. <laughs> it will never happen. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Um, the trailer thing is very interesting because part of what's happening also, where I think there's a derivative work, is, um, so what'll happen is the trailer, the trailer editor will take one piece of music and then he or she may lay other musical elements on top and or have a second composer compose another track on top of the first one. Now, to me, that's a derivative work, right? That's not how it's treated in the trailer licensing world, which to me is it's amazing to me that that's not a derivative work. But, but on, so on the sound recording side, I actually, I mean look, if you take a, a, the Rolling Stones recording, and then you have a composer who lays some stuff on top, I really don't think that the Stones would be okay with another artist or whatever mm -hmm. having part of that copyright. So here's the other part of the question. When you change it so much that the instrumental only is no longer really a cover, can you license that separately? Because then technically if you put it back together, so, so that's a that's a great question. I think um, I am not an attorney, but I'll tell you how I would perceive that. If you pitched that sound recording with our melody on top, it is it's our composition. If you never pitched it with that melody, then I would say it's not. What do you think, Jeff? Me? Yep. The attorney. Um, we have an attorney here. Uh, He's going to give you a bill after he speaks. I think it might be coming to me. So this is hypothetical. So the question was. Unchained Melody mm -hmm. with uh, in original with those chord changes and then the Unchained Melody melody on top. Yes. Okay. Then let's say it's simply the chord changes. Chord changes. This is the general rule. You know, it's been the legal sort of precedent um, over the years. I don't particularly uh, you know, agree with it, but you take an issue with that because it's all about harmony of chords. But generally speaking. When we're talking about pop music, which Unchained Melody is a pop song, um, the chords are not copyrightable. It's the melody and the lyrics that make the song copyrightable. So they take the chords to Unchained Melody, which have probably been used in, nothing to take, take away from your father. A million songs. A million songs. <laughs> I'm also a musician, so I, it's my saving grace. That's changed kind of recently by Blurred Lines. Well, Blurred Lines, well, okay, let me ask you this. Not take it as the composition, and let's make it be the sound recording. Right. So you are the you're the music supervisor, you're the editor, you're the licensee. Mm -hmm. And initially, you say, you know what, I want to hear your entire master recording that includes the, the changes and the melody. You hear that, 
And then you, so you've been pitched that, and you know what the intention is, right? right? And then you say, you know what, can you just give me the stems? Just give me the track without the melody, and then you use that. What is it? Well, you really get into the, you know, the subtleties of the difference between the sound recording and the song. Now, you know, lawyers always will look at things sort of in the future, see what a court would do. Now, a court will look at that and try to determine, well, what is an element of a of the sound recording, and what is an element of the piece? Now, there's a, not to bore everybody, but there was a, a, a case involving the Beastie Boys uh, several years ago, which they used a flute, three notes from the flute piece that they uh, didn't have permission from the composer, but they had permission, uh, permission from the sound recording from the, great, the record label. I don't know if you all know this case. Everybody's kind of nodding, but um, there's this very unique flute uh, method that the flautist used, and the court determined that that wasn't part of the composition because it wasn't notated in the music. It was part of the sound recording, and they had permission to use the sound recording. So it becomes a very complex issue, especially nowadays when producers are composers almost because they are adding all this stuff to the basic song. And so it does become very, very complex. And when you have someone saying, oh, just give me the stems and I'll add to it, you know, you might get away, again, with, you know, with the whole song thing. But as far as the sound recording goes, that's a little dicey, right? So that, that would be mine. I, I agree. That's how I would pursue it. <coughs> that's the only time I'll be free. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then you come up with a new, completely unique arrangement. Totally
They'll give you the permission to sing the translation. Oh, of course. Oh, that's lovely. It's beautiful. They make all the money. Do you have a strategy for, you know, actually, you know, the last one I asked, oh, this is fantastic. You know, we'll give you permission to record this. No problem. But, you know, my want will never, I, I would like to approach them. If, if you were French, or I think Italian or Spanish, your local society would insist on you getting one third of the uh, regular share of performance. So if I become a member of no, no, if you actually become that, <laughs> if you get a, if you get a passport in that, and actually, you know, that's not totally true. Yeah, if you were if you were a if you were affiliated with that society, and Sassem is one that that uh, insists that the arranger does. Receive a share of writer. Well, okay, so <laughs> there's translation and there's adaptation. They're not the same, but so I would not say translator. I would say I would say adapter or arranger, and I would actually specifically probably say arranger. But it depends on the society. Not not all societies are going to have that distinction. Um, but it, but in general, publishers will not give any. Uh, yeah. any, any royalties to a, an adapter. So let's thank our panelists tonight. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Rich Bullock speaking on behalf of the ASMAC board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and videos, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Chuck Fernandez for recording this talk. Editing was done by Kim Richmond to prepare for broadcast.